So, you know, we couldn't afford to both go. We got John a one-way ticket to Texas, and he removed this old mash tun from this old defunct brewery, put it on a trailer, and he actually drove back to Boston with it. Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Jen Kimmich joins us today, who along with her husband John, founded The Alchemist, brewers of the finest damn beer in the world, period, the end. Welcome, Jen, to VSET. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. So happy to have you here, Jen. I think we all are pretty distracted by Hetty Topper, but I think uh, everyone kind of wants to hear a little bit more about, you know, who the people are behind it um, and what else you guys have going on. Um, so, I mean, let's just start at the beginning. How was The Alchemist born? Like, what was the inspiration? Sure. Well, I should start out with John and I meeting over 20 years ago. Uh, we were both fresh out of college. Um, I had graduated from UVM, him from Penn State, and we were both working at the Vermont Pub and Brewery. Um, John was a new young brewer, and I was waiting tables, bartending, you know, just figuring out what I wanted to do after college. Um, and we fell in love. Um, you know, we, we both had this shared passion for beer, and he made really great beer. And that, How could he say no to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the beginning, <laughs> I, I knew. That's a girl right yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really, from the beginning, I knew he had a talent for making beer. You know, it was just so delicious. I, I loved drinking the dog bite bitter, and, you know, we'd talk about beer. We both loved beer. We loved working at the Vermont Pub and Brewery. We loved the culture there. We loved what Greg and Nancy Noonan created. We loved that sense of community. And together we started dreaming and scheming about our own community brew pub. Um, we got married shortly thereafter. We were married in 1997. And for the first seven years of our marriage, we worked hard at formulating our business plan. I spent a lot of time um, working on financial plan, um, all sorts of logistics while John was really working on brew recipes um, on a small brew system out in our garage. Um, we traveled a bit those first seven, eight years we were married. We worked lots of crappy jobs, saved as much money as we could, worked multiple jobs at a time. Um, and then we landed back here in Vermont in 2001. Um, and in 2003, we started building out our dream brew pub. Um, and the home for that was in Waterbury Vill Village. Mm -hmm. Um, at the time, people told us we were crazy to open up a brew pub in Waterbury. No one goes to Waterbury to drink. Um, you know, the, everyone said you need to go to Stowe, you need to go to Montpelier, you need to, to go to Burlington. Turtle. That was your only option yeah. in Waterbury. Yeah, that's right? right. Yeah, in the back, not the backyard. What was the the, the, the village pub or whatever, right across the street. Um, but we knew it was a good location, right? Even though there weren't a lot of restaurants and bars there we saw how close it was to all these recreational areas, you know, Mad River Valley, Bolton Valley, Stowe, and the proximity to Montpelier and Burlington. I mean, of course, the people are here. It just made sense to us. So we built out our brew pub. We did everything ourselves. Um, we were on a shoestring budget. Um, over the course of about seven years, we saved a total of $30,000. And with that $30,000, we were able to secure a $150,000 loan. 
So we had about $150,000 plus some credit cards we had maxed out. We also had equipment that we had salvaged over the years, um, free equipment that we had dug out and put in warehouses from old bosses. And so we really Price did this all ourselves. Like no, you know, <laughs> you know, you'd see uh, an ad for a, for instance, there was one time there was a brewery um, going out of business in Texas. So, you know, we couldn't afford to both go. We got John a one-way ticket to Texas, and he um, got the, removed this old mash tun from this old defunct brewery, put it on a trailer, and he actually drove back to Boston with it. And then we had a really great um, boss at the time who let us store it in a warehouse. So there was a lot of salvaged stuff. Um, cool. Yeah, so we went into the space in Waterbury. We did everything ourselves. You know, John built the brewery. He, um, you know, he put all, all the hard piping in. He installed the brew house. He literally did everything. He also demoed upstairs um, where our restaurant would be so that we could build that out. Um, I pieced together the kitchen with all used equipment from eBay. So, you know, it was a shoestring budget. Um, when we opened, we were broke. We had about $20 in the bank. Um, but we opened, we had a great staff, you know, and it's funny when you open a business, especially a restaurant, people say, don't plan on making money the first year. With a restaurant, they usually say two or five years, you know, you're not going to make money. Everybody said, well, that's kind of stupid. Who's going to open up a restaurant that doesn't make any money? We had to make money. Thankfully, we were packed the first night we opened. Um, yep, I think all John had to eat for the three weeks leading up to opening was ramen noodles, so he was not looking good. But we opened, and it was a lot of stress off of our shoulders. We were busy. People were excited. We were there. They were coming out of the woodwork. Um, and then the next day, we actually found out we were pregnant, which was um, crazy. You know, I think I had been in denial for a couple of weeks. Um, and John made me take a pregnancy test in the basement of the brewery. And when we saw it was positive, I just looked at him and started crying. How are we going to do this? And he said, don't worry, it's all going to work out. You can't make that up. Yeah. That, and so, awesome. yeah, yeah. yeah. And then nine months later, I was hosting with the baby and the Bjorn, bartending with the baby on me. And it was an interesting ride. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the, the early days of, of the Alchemist and Waterbury just helped sort of give that community a, a rally point, mm -hmm. right? And I think... Um, was was just something that again entrepreneurship seems to be about timing mm -hmm. right when the right time is to get in and, and sometimes when to when to get out and as a result of that that early sort of buy-in by the community i mean you, you all are just known for what you do in communities for the community just can you just talk a little bit about that because some folks would just sure. take take the checks yeah. put the deposits in and and you know look for a sunny place to go hang out so yeah. but well, you know, this, this this pub was our dream. You know, the day we opened that pub, that was it. We were thought we were done. You know, this is what we're going to do for the rest of our lives. We've made it. Um, we just loved that connection to the community. I think, you know, if a more corporate brew pub had come into Waterbury and um, there weren't names and faces associated with the business, it wouldn't have been as successful as we were. I think the way we opened up on a shoestring budget and we were there working every night and talking to people, I think that really resonated with people. And I think the community connected with us. They were so supportive. Um, and from the beginning, you know, we never spent money on advertising. We never spent money on marketing. We made the decision early on 
that we would put all of our energy into our community, our local community first. If we can focus on giving them the best food, the best beer we can, the best service, and just give back, give back to local organizations, then the rest would follow. And that, that really did prove to be true. You know, within a matter of months, we would have people visiting us from Boston or from Burlington even, or just visitors, they knew about us. Um, they knew of us as just being this funky little Vermont Village Brewery, and that was just really cool. Huge. Yeah. And, I was gonna say, um, and then what, what does the Alchemist today look like? So, you know, although that was our ultimate goal, um, we were extremely successful, more successful than we ever imagined. We had lines um, of people waiting to come into our brew pub every day when we opened at four. So everything after that was really a response to the market, a response to the demand that we couldn't um, maintain. Um, I, I would say shortly after we opened, I started talking about opening up a second production brewery, but there were a couple of things going on. We had you know, a young child who we really wanted to spend as much time with as possible. Um, and then we were also working our tails off. You know, I, I was, John would come in and brew all day, um, oversee the brewery. I'd be home with our son, Charlie. I'd come in with Charlie, hand him over to John. He would go home with Charlie and I would work every night. So, you know, it was a big sacrifice. John and I rarely saw each other, but we were able to be with our, our son all the time. Um, and we were managing, you know, we were just managing business and being new parents. So those first four years, there was no growth. Um, and then after Charlie started school, I really started hounding John. Come on, John, let's open into this production brewery. We need to make more beer. People want beer in a package. Um, but beyond that, we were working so hard, but in as busy as we were and as successful as we were, we weren't making much money because the bottom line is restaurants don't make a lot of money. <laughs> um, I had, I had this recurring nightmare that I was going to be 70 years old and bussing tables still, you know, and I was really getting um, tired of going in to wash dishes on a Friday yeah. night. And, you know, John was apprehensive, um, because he always had such control over his beer. He didn't want to let that go, but also he was really afraid of working more. He's, oh no, we can't work more, we can't work more. But after some convincing and really showing him the financials, that if we do this, we'll have the resources to hire more people, and in fact, it will be less work for us. And you know, I think once we found the spot where we decided to open our production brewery, he, he understood that and, he went with it, and we had a lot of trust in each other, and, and we started building out our first production did, brewery. Did you just talk about this yourselves, or did you work? Was was the SBA a resource, or did you have advisors or a no. board, or just sort of kitchen no. table? And it's always been it, just John and I. Um, you know, we are full owners. Um, you know, we really do everything ourselves. With that said, when I was first doing the financial planning for our brewery before we opened, I did utilize some SBA resources that were really critical. And, you know, I talk to young entrepreneurs about this a lot. When you're making a business plan, it's not about the fluff. You know, you can have a 50-page business plan. That doesn't matter so much. You should be able to write on one page, I think, what you're going to do. And then you need really good financials, right? You need really solid assumptions. You need to know what you're going to sell. You need to know what your costs are going to be. You need to know what your overhead is. That's the meat of a business plan, and that's what's important. And the SBA was so helpful. Um, you know, I utilized resources. We were living in Boston, the SCORE program. Yeah. 
So I met at Boston College with a professor who had been a business owner, and he went through my pro formas, my break-even analysis, cash flow with me. I worked on those with him for about a year. I also used um, some women's SBA resources in Boston. So that was really key. Um, and, you know, what you end up with is a 20-page financial yeah. plan. <laughs> so, Jen, I just, I'm, I'm really fascinated by your patience. So from what you've told us so far, you know, you guys saved up a lot of money to bootstrap and you waited, you know, you had the idea many years before you started the pub and then the pub was successful for a few years before you, you know, opened the brewery um, or the production brewery, I should say. What do you suggest to entrepreneurs who are having a hard time with patience or waiting and really just want to get started and have this idea? Um, what, what kind of advice can you give them on that? You know, I think for us, being patient and growing in a slow and sustainable manner is really critical. Um, but I think our goals are different than some people that have startups. I think I see a lot of people with startups and they're trying to grow as quick as possible because they're setting themselves up to sell. Right. For us, it was different. It was about this is what we want to do with our life. How do we do it in a sustainable way? Um, for us, saving money was a big part of that. Um, we probably could have started our business much sooner had we been willing to take on investors. Um, our first production brewery could have been much larger had we been willing to take on investors or go public. We were never willing to do that. We always looked at the long um, long-term picture and we always knew we only want to work for ourselves. John and I aren't good with rules. We don't like reporting to people. Uh, we like making decisions quick and efficiently. And so those are things we really value. And so that meant growing slow. Um, so our first business, um, our brew pub, we opened with a $150,000 loan. Our second our business, our first production brewery in Waterbury, we started with a $350,000 loan. And then most recently, we were able to secure a $10 million loan for our newest brewery. Um, Proven success. Yeah. And, it, you know, 13 years, um, it, it was a, 13 years since we started our business, 20 years since we started planning our, our, our whole entire business plan. But um, in the end, it's worth it because we don't report to anyone and we can do whatever we want with our business. You know, the, the sort of germination period, that 10 years is, is not uncommon for mm -hmm. when companies hit an inflection point. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of companies like maybe MyWebGrocer in the tech field or Dealer.com sort of, you know, had gradual mm -hmm. good growth and then the timing got right, maybe mm -hmm. vision got bigger and opportunity presented and mm -hmm. they, they were in a position to act because they had done the prep work. Yeah. And the yeah. bank trusts you. You've spent time building relationships with your community and your employees and banks. And so, so people support you yeah. and they and get there's, behind you. Know, you. There, there's, you know, there's lottery ticket kind of businesses, right? That yeah. have quick ins, quick outs. That's probably the, that, not probably, that is the exception mm -hmm. versus this commitment and, and, and the grunt work that, that maybe goes, goes into this. So, mm -hmm. um, Talk about the new facility. I live yes. in Stowe, where that is. I love it. I mean, it, I get as excited going to the Alchemist as I do going to Burton to buy a snowboard. Yeah. Right. I mean, how, I mean, for beer and boards, you can't be in a better place than, than Vermont. Thank you. Well, just <laughs> like our first production brewery, um, we built this brewery in response to what customers were demanding, what they were telling us they wanted. Um, we were forced to close our small tasting room at our first production brewery because the lines were too long, the traffic was backed up, et cetera. Um, 
So when we built our stove facility, we were really thinking about crowds, how we can be efficient, how we can accommodate all of the parking. Um, and so we built this facility. It's 9,500 square feet, which actually isn't that big. Um, actually, the footprint is 9,500 square feet. The entire square footage is um, 15,600 with the mezzanine. But the way we designed it, we put in curved steel roof. It's kind of rounded. So what that allows us to do is when we want to have future bumps in production, we can put taller tanks in. So we're really overbuilt. We have an immense HVAC system. We have a million dollar biofilm reactor for our wastewater. Um, we have a hundred um, spot parking area. Um, everything is overbuilt. We have all this extra cubic space. So we're really poised for growth um, when we're ready to do that. And what's a typical week look like mm -hmm. now at the brewery? Right, you have this 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 parking lot. Mm -hmm. um, are there are there lines? You're still seeing sort of the international and regional yeah. draw. Absolutely. So we opened um, late June of this summer. Um, I would say until the middle of September, we had a line of at least a hundred people every morning um, before before we were ready to open at 11 a.m. Um, there were mornings where we would have three to 400 people in line and we had, would have a queue of cars waiting to park. Um, more recently, since the off season has kind of kicked in here in Stowe, we now have a shorter line, um, Tuesday through Thursday, maybe 20, 30 people outside, Friday a little busier, our Saturdays are still crazy. We actually just had our record days this past Friday and Saturday in the middle of November, which is historically the slowest time of I year. I was coming by to stock up and yep. I saw the line from uh, 108 yep. and yep. my gosh, yep. I, I didn't know if it was a free beer day, like free cone day yep. is or something. Well, we, we did... We did some planning in September, you know, being familiar with the seasonality of Stowe, um, we knew the month of November would be our slowest month. We also knew the first week of December would be our slowest. So we've kind of been saving up all of our special beer releases um, for these few weeks. So we released our Petite Mutant, which we do every year. Um, it's a 100% indigenous Vermont beer. It's made with all Vermont malt, Montmorency cherries. Um, we released that and we re released um, a cheese that we do with Jasper Hill as well. Um, it's their Willoughby um, cheese it. and it's washed with the Petite Mutant. So we had this big release. Um, we announced it on a Monday. We were very busy Tuesday through Thursday and then Friday, Saturday, we had our record days. And what we saw were a lot of return customers on Saturday from Friday. They had actually decided to come to Stowe and spend the night so that they could get two days worth of allocations. Um, and you know, since this past weekend, we've been hearing from so many local business owners that they couldn't believe how busy I'm they were. Business the business is so much, you know, their business so much busier than last year. Um, and so we had another release this week. I think we're gonna be busy again this weekend and then we have a couple more I think a lot of Christmas. them are mountain bikers too because there were a lot of mountain bikers in town too so <laughs> I'm sure you know correlation, we, right? yeah we don't you know I hate to even I never use the word um, our target demographic yeah. because I, I like to think that we want to target everyone that just likes good beer you know and I think that really is um, evident when you look at our line of folks in the morning I think you can go to a lot of kind of these cult craft breweries and the lines waiting to go in are like 
the quintessential beer geek, right? They're 25 to 35, you know. That's not all the folks in our line. Maybe half, but we have a lot of families. We have a lot of farmers, you know. Uh, we just have such a diverse group of people. It's really my great. mom pit stocking up to drop it off to my brother at the rest area in New Jersey on their way to Florida for the winter. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Literally. So, and again, I'm sure that's not a unique story. Yeah. Um, can you talk about your team? Yeah. Um, just, you know... You, you and John have sort of uh, assembled a, an amazing cast of characters mm-hmm. and co-workers. Just, just again, you know, was it, did it, ha- was it just happenstance or, you know, did you say this is the type of team we want? We're going to follow convention or not follow convention. Mm-hmm. I think that would be really great for our, our listeners to, to, to hear. Certainly. Our strongest asset is definitely our staff, um, you know, but it didn't happen overnight. I think it... They were a big investment, just like every other asset we have. We invested in them, and in turn, they invest in us. Um, You know, to say our hiring um, practices are unconventional would definitely be an understatement. Um, We hire friends. We hire families. um, You know, if we're looking for someone, we'll always ask our staff, do you have a friend or family who you think would be a good fit before we go out and uh, look for someone? Are there married couples in the We have six married couples. Um, We have two kids whose parents work there. Um, And we have a very diverse um, work working group. We have um, our oldest employee is 74. We also have a retired firefighter who's 60. Um, We have actually a few people in their 60s. We also have young people. Um, And, you know, we really work on making our our staff diverse, but that's not always easy in Vermont, right? So when we think of diversifying um, our staff, we think about people of different ages, and then we also think about um, keeping women and men balanced in certain roles, um, because I just think balance is really important. So amongst our brewing staff, um, we have eight brewers, um, four of them are women. Um, in our retail room, it's really balanced. So that's just really something that's important to us. Um, Workplace culture is just so important. You know, we give all of our staff autonomy. We trust them. Um, We treat them like adults. Um, We give them paid sick time, vacation time. We give them the best benefits we can. Um, And and they are the most loyal, giving group of people you will ever meet. It it has just, it's worked out for us really well. Um, A lot of our staff have been with us since we opened 13 years ago. Uh, many of them have been with us for at least six years. We literally have no employee turnover. Um, I was just doing a B Corps assessment, and they asked me how many employees have left on their own in the last four years. And I sat there and I thought about it, and I said zero. And they said, "No, that's not right." And I thought, I said, "Really? No one has left. It's wow. really, it's really incredible." Um, and then beyond that, very few of our staff actually went to college. So we really make an effort to. Hire folks that we think are good workers, are intelligent, um, but are just kind of stuck in dead-end jobs. Um, For instance, our lead um, canning line operator and our property um, manager, um, he used to be a bartender. Our other bartender now runs another canning line. 
um, we had a hostess start for us when she was 17 at her pub. She's now 27 and she's our office manager. She never went to college. We've helped her with some classes, but we've done all the training with her. Um, we had a dishwasher start for us when he was 16. He never went to college. He now um, delivers beer for us in a truck. So we're always, if we see someone who's hardworking and honest, we'll give them a, a fair shake and we'll train them the best we can. And you know, it's worked out for us every time. Outstanding, outstanding. Um, maybe you can help this. I don't get hard cider. Why, why is it such a huge thing? <laughs> Why is hard? I, you know, people have different tastes. Uh, people like apples, you know? Yeah. Right. I, I love it. Stone cider I, and citizen cider yeah. and, and Shaxbury is great. I just, uh, I, I forgot to ask a beer person, yeah. right? And, you know. Not you know, to be biased or anything. Yeah, not, not at all. Not at all. Um, it, and, Jen, you have involvement in, I think it's called the Main Street Alliance, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, in, in Vermont. And could you just... Talk a little bit about what it is and what draws you to that, knowing how busy you are growing this uh, company and, and working with your team. Sure, yeah. Main Street Alliance um, Vermont um, has been active for a couple of years now. Um, there is a national organization of Main Street Alliance, and they work closely with family values at work. Just a great organization. Um, they focus on a lot of public policy. Much of it has to do with workers, workers' rights, working families. Um, in Vermont, what we do, I'm the board chair. Um, we have a great board made up mostly of small business owners. Um, you know, there are a lot of great business organizations in the state, the Roundtable, Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility. We're members of those groups as well. But the thing that I think is different about Main Street Alliance is that it's really run by smaller business owners, um, retailers, restaurant owners, um, the, these kind of brick and mortar businesses that really um, give so much added value to our communities, even though they might not be the biggest employers or the biggest um, generating um, revenue businesses. You know, they just, they mean so much. Our bookstores, our restaurants. So when we all come to the table and we talk about public policy, for the most part, we all share the same values, right? We want people to have good health care. We want people to have fam family leave. Um, but when we bring these small business leaders to the table, we understand the limitations that we have as far as money goes, right? These are businesses that may, might not make as much money as IBM or Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, but they want to share and give benefits the same as um, the bigger employers. So we come to the table and we kind of try to work on public policy and come up with solutions that are viable for small businesses as well as large businesses. Yeah, so I, you know, this is kind of backtracking a little bit, but, um, you know, the community aspect definitely um, strikes a chord. And, you know, I think I always like asking, especially husband-wife teams on, you know, how do you do it and, and do you love it and sometimes maybe hate it. And um, But what really struck me that you're talking about is um, having your son and raising your son and, and still being an entrepreneur and starting a business. And um, I know here at Visa, most of our entrepreneurs are young parents, and I know they all struggle with that. Um, so I just wanted to get a little bit of insight on, on you know, being a family and raising a child like while you're starting a business. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not for everyone. Um, it's, it's certainly challenging. Um, you definitely have to make sacrifice. But at the same time, um, if you work well together, it, it, 
for John and I, it's been great because we're great partners. You know, he's such an amazing artist. Um, he's so, his craft, he's such a genius with his craft. And I love the financial side of things and the management side. So together, we're a really great team. Um, so we're really fortunate. We know that and we recognize that. With that said, it's not always easy. Um, but if you really love each other and you stay focused on on the long-term goal, it can really work out well. Um, I don't, I, John and I always say we wouldn't be able to have our business if, if we were alone. You know, that's really critical for us. But every business is different. Um, and I think no matter what your challenges are, if you're passionate about what you're doing and you're patient and you're ready and willing to roll with the punches and have some flexibility with your business, you, you can hang in there, make it work. You know, looking through the rearview mirror, Jen, um, on the on the business side of that that you spend the most of your time on, you know, was there a particular skill you wish you had had at some point that you said, "Oh gosh, darn! I should have I should have studied uh, product marketing mm-hmm. or or uh, or more financials." I mean, is there because we're so often mm-hmm. trying to find that right little investment of, of time for the over 300 startup teams we meet with a year here mm-hmm. at Reset. So is there anything you can think of in the rearview mirror? That- you know, I, I hate to say it, but no, I really feel good about what we've done. Um, and, you know, we've never used a marketing team. We've never used an advertising agency. We've never used a designer. Um, we do everything ourselves. I really believe for us, um, our personality is so much of our brand that we need to just go with our gut instinct a lot of time. Um, we need to believe in what we like. Um, and we stay true to that. You know, do, do we hit it? Is it right all the time? Maybe not, but we do and we're authentic and we never have someone coming in and telling us how we should do things or it would be better this way. We just, we kind of roll with it. It works for us. It doesn't work for everyone. Um, Hearing that you guys have done all the kind of marketing and advertising and stuff um, yourselves leads me to ask two questions. One, your artwork is amazing and I want to know who does it. And two, The Alchemist, where did it come from? The name. The, a lot of brainstorming. You mm-hmm. know, I would say the best part about being a business partner with your spouse is the best and the worst, I should say. Your whole life is consumed by work, right? Right. When we're driving in the car, we're always talking work, we're throwing around beer names, this or that. And I think we came up with the alchemist in the car. You know, we had so many different names we were throwing around and that one just kind of stuck. We liked it. Um, All good ideas come from car rides, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then, you know, Early on, way back at the pub, we never used a marketing person or advertiser. What we would do is if John and I had an idea, um, an image in our brain for a piece of artwork is we would find an artist to then, um, you know, make that for us. So um, Jess Graham is now our art director in Stowe. She is amazing. Um, She's been our art director for about five years now. She's a great graphic artist. Um, You know, John and I might have a crazy idea. Can you, can you paint these hands with hops on them, welcoming you, welcome you, welcoming you into the door? Um, and she did that on our front doors. We have these hands. So it's just little things like that. We have an idea. We go to her. She can do it. She's amazing. Um, 
We've also used this artist named Dan Blakesley, who has done our can art, our focal banger, and our heady topper. He's done some other brands for us that we just haven't put on cans yet. Um, so we try to keep that pretty consistent. Um, and Jess is just really great at keeping our branding consistent, um, color scheme, all of that. So, you know, for us, instead of investing in a marketing person who's like, oh, these five colors are what you should use, we actually have a great artist who can just do amazing work, and that works for us. And I think it comes off as really, really authentic, too, because people, you know, it's recognizable, but it's also, it's not overanalyzed, you know, it, it is what it is, and I think that's what appeals to a lot of people. Exactly, and you see so many um, businesses get caught in that, right? The whole branding thing, overthinking of it, they have... They've got their logo and they've got their three colors and they kind of stick with it all. And then they rebrand again a few years later. And it's like, ah, that always scares me. The idea of rebranding, you know, that doesn't sound like a good. Yeah, I, I think I uh, remember uh, Magic Hat in the early days at one point saying to me, uh, hey, we make more money from T-shirts than we do from beer, right? You know, yeah. because it was part of the experience. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the questions I have is, I mean, you, you, you've earned and achieved this sort of exalted status in the beer world, right, as evidenced by the demand. And how is that, has that put the pressure on uh, with respect to risk-taking around some of these seasonals or new products that you push out? Is it, you know, are you still swinging for the fences with some of these? Or is there, is there any internal saying, oh, whoa, we don't want to get... Uh, we don't get critiqued yeah. know, for, for putting out our bad, our, our bad album. Right. <laughs> so yeah. To speak. yeah. Yeah. You know, not at all. I think, you know, our beers aren't far reaching, you know, Hetty Topper, our flagship IPA, you know, I think it was cutting edge at the time. We first had that on tap in 2004, but it wasn't a cinnamon chocolate marshmallow stout either. It's just a good fresh IPA, you know, you see all these breweries now, they're just, they're trying to find this new crazy thing. We don't do that. Um, all of our releases now, our specialty releases, are beers that we had on tap at our pub. You know, we had our Harvest Ale, our Beals Above. These are beers we've been making for many years. They're not outlandish. They're just good, straightforward beers that we make as well as possible with the best ingredients we can and just make them delicious. And that's just what we try to do, consistency. We're not looking to, you know, hit another one out of the park. Like, you know, we just try to make good, consistent beer um, the best we can. And again, focus on our local community and not worry about people going crazy for our beer in California. Just staying lo local and, you know, hey, Dave, did you get your Donovan's Red this week? You <laughs> used to love that at the pub. That's what's important yeah, to us. Yeah, the Harvest Dale, that yeah. caramelized taste is like the fall's coming, right? Yeah. Um, there's so much of, of the the sort of, elite beer experience and I call it it's an experience it's almost about connecting with the can and the place and the, the people there and and that whether you're whether it's up at Hill Farmstead seeing what what they've created there or go down uh, say Cisco Brewery and on Nantucket um, you know how is that is that sort of part of your strategic map too that it's, it's got to be more than just the can right and what we're selling in terms of your customer and why they come to sort of have this this just awesome experience. Sure, yeah. I mean, our focus is quality all the time, but it's not just quality of the beer. It's quality of everything, the whole experience, you know, having our staff give the best service they can, being greeted with a smile, um, you know, knowing that we give back to the community, know that we're making beer in the most sustainable way we can. I think those are things that really matter in addition to the beer. 
So I think it's the whole package. It's quality really from start to finish. Okay. Do you have uh, another question? So I think we're probably getting there on time. Yeah, I just, I had one question that I think um, everyone wants to know every time they go to your brewery is how do you guys manage such crazy rapid growth? You know, what's the, what's the strategy around it? It, I mean, it's, it is it reactive or proactive? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because probably our biggest criticism over the year is not growing, um, not growing fast enough, and not being big enough um, for us. It's been great growth, and so it's really nice to hear that. Um, for us, it's been very manageable um, and, and and sustainable. You know, we started out brew pub for eight years. Our first production brewery was going for five years before we opened the next one. So. It, 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 we're, we try to stay in control of it and it's not too rapid. And I think for us, that's really been key. Um, and there were a couple of years where there, there were people that really criticized us. You know, you're controlling um, the market on purpose. You're not making as much beer as you can. Why don't you go public? You need to go national. And, you know, I why'd think you shut the store, right? Right. There yeah. Some awful things being said. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, you know, I think, um, we just went at the pace we could that we knew we could manage, you know, without having someone come in and manage our business for us, because that's the last thing we ever want to happen. Well, I hope Governor Shumlin does one thing more uh, is just declare, you know, a Vermont Hetty Topper Day at some point. I think that'd be <laughs> cool. So on his on his way out. And I think uh, we've got a a wrap-up question we ask everybody. Yeah. Okay. We'll edit out this. <laughs> this is our favorite. Magic wand. If you could change one thing about Vermont today, what would it be? I think they go together, but poverty, the poverty, rural poverty specifically and the opiate problem, but they go together, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, this has been Start Here with uh, Sam and Dave, uh, a podcast sharing the stories of active, inspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This has been made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Fairpoint Communications. Follow us at VSEC. And as always, thanks for listening. Drink up.